3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, this is Wednesday Breakfast, I'm Eidman Jeffrey, and it is the 11th of the 11th today, or, you know, also Wednesday. Um, you might be wondering where Rob is, today is going to be a bit of a different show. We're currently taking a little bit of a holiday, so we're going to be playing conversations from around the station and from Wednesday Breakfast shows. Now, it is NADOC week, so we're also going to be looking into that and playing some content related to that. Uh, and I'll jump into, I suppose, what's going specifically on in just a moment. But first, this. The Jabberung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jabberung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 96515000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. So I wanted to kick off the show with uh, a reference to Jabarong and that community service announcement for action that we can be doing to support them because it feeds into this year's NADOC week theme, which is always was, always will be. Now, NADOC is the annual week celebrations held across Australia, usually in July, to celebrate the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Due to COVID this year, it was moved to November. So if you're wondering why this is a little later than usual, that's why. And touching on this, like 2020 has been a huge year for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. We've seen the Black Lives Matter protests in the middle of the year bring renewed interest and awareness to deaths in custody. Uh, as of now, the tally stands at 441 deaths in custody since uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody over 25 years ago. We've also seen horrific acts of cultural destruction uh, at the hands of mining corporations. I'm talking, of course, here about... Rio Tinto's cultural destruction of the Duke and Gorge, Adani's continued construction, and Gomeroy land in northwest of South, uh, New South Wales uh, under development from the Shonoha watermark mine. We've also seen here in Victoria, as I just said, Jabwarawang, and the public pressure that's been required to hold off cultural destruction until the 19th. Also this year, we've seen a few wins. So Lydia Thorpe, first Greens Indigenous Senator, has been sworn into the Senate. We'll be hearing from her today through a segment from Black Block, which is one of our awesome shows here at 3CR, where Marika Onis and Viv talk to Lydia, which is in a pretty awesome interview about her time in Parliament and getting used to the new environment. 
We've also had the announcement of the new Close the Gap targets, a decade on from when they were originally announced in 2008. This year's is especially significant um, as they were actually led by the Coalition of Peaks, a body of 14 Indigenous organisations that have come together to help collaborate and, I suppose, inform government decisions around this policy. This has amounted to 15 new targets which cover new areas such as land, um, education and incarceration. We'll be listening back to the conversation I had uh, just over a month ago with Natasil's Aboriginal Legal Service about the significance of the Coalition of Peaks within this process and what the agreement needs to now do to make sure its intentions are upheld. Finally, we'll also be having uh, today as an interview with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service about a recent case they just won with the Australian Financial Complaints Authority against an organisation that was misrepresenting itself as Aboriginally owned and controlled. And this has been an ongoing case. Um, the company involved is called Yopla and has been called out really for over a decade now for some really dodgy dealings. So Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services as well as Finance Legal Services actually took a joint case and won it. So that's very exciting. We'll also be having conversations today away from, I suppose, NAIDOC theme about the Defence Legislation Amendment Bill with Dr Sue Wareham from the Medical Association of Prevention of War. This is a not-for-profit organisation that works to promote peace and disarmament, and we'll be talking to Sue about some of the concerns raised about the bill and kind of the, um, the details of the bill that still remain really, really lacking in detail. All right, wonderful. Well, we'll kick off now with a song, and we'll be back with our first interview.
You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Now, I have referenced the next story we're going to talk about on alternative news quite a bit, but today we're speaking about it in more detail. This is, of course, the Defence Legislation Amendment or Enhancement of Defence Force Responses to Emergency Bill 2020. This is the bill that seeks to streamline the call-out of Australian Defence Forces in certain emergencies, namely what we saw in the bushfires or potentially even COVID. However, the bill has been subject to heavy criticism as it introduces yet another mechanism for the unreasonable extension of government powers to meet crises with force. Joining me for a more extensive conversation is Sue Wareham from the Medical Association for Prevention of War, a not-for-profit organisation that works to promote peace and disarmament. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Adwin. So I wanted to start off with kind of the bill's major concerns. Uh, Building off my understandings from outlined by Kelly Trantor, who is a a lawyer, uh, it's namely the bill's lack of definition around what justifies an emergency for state forces to be called into action. It also extends a large immunity for ADF personnel from civil and criminal liability within actions under these emergencies. And the bill authorises the use of foreign military and police forces to aid in these said emergencies. Now, Sue, to start off, could I get your shopping list of concerns around this bill and how the Medical Association um, for Prevention of War kind of got involved with this bill? Yes, certainly. Thanks, Hydrin. And that's a, that's a fairly good summary, although um, there would be um, some comments I, I could make about each of those um, and the um, relative import- importance of, of each of them. Um, but I... I think the reason, one of the reasons that our organisation got involved was that this bill raises a much larger issue than the ones that you've outlined, which specifically relate to what's in and not in the bill. But the bigger issue is why is the government bringing in this bill now? And why is it prioritising or seeming to prioritise a military response to climate-related disasters? Now, um, anybody, um, any serious commentator on this issue would know that the bushfires last summer were very significantly climate related. We need much, much, much stronger action from the government in relation to um, reducing our our carbon emissions. That's number one priority. But in preparation for climate disasters um, and in preparing, properly preparing our fire and emergency services, equipping them, training them, giving them what they need to do the job that we've tasked them with. But instead, we see the government prioritising military response, which in any scenario is going to be a pretty tiny part of the overall response. So um, we have to wonder why this is coming up now and whether it's because the government needs to be seen to be doing something on climate change, whether it boosts the role of, of the ADF uh, generally so it can therefore boost military spending or justify its huge increases in military spending. So I think the question as to why the bill is coming up now is an important one too. Absolutely. And now the bill has passed the federal lower house and is currently in its second reading agreement phase. As of the 8th of October, the Senate was actually uh, refer- referred the bill to the Senate of Foreign Affairs Defence Trade Legislation Committee for inquiry. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the report was due back on the 4th of November. Now, I'll have that report in our rundown today for listeners. Uh, it was chaired by the Senator Erica Betts. And the report largely found that they, you know, largely supported the bill. It addressed public concern by suggesting that there might be public misunderstandings around things such as immunity and foreign, the use of foreign services. 
and it recommended that the bill passed without delay. Now, I just wanted to get what's the medical association's um, response to this, because I know you guys were calling for submissions against and concerns, um, a public statement of concerns against the bill. How do you feel about the outcome of this report? Well, it's pretty disappointing. Um, and I guess looking at the membership of the committee, it's perhaps not surprising. But it's uh, disappointing to see a recommendation that this bill be passed uh, quite promptly. And I think the comment about um, comment from the committee that there may be some misunderstandings. Mm. Well, yes. And the text of the bill itself leads to misunderstandings. And I think that's the very problem that a number of quite a large number of people have been commenting on that what the parliament um, or the government's explanatory notes about the bill say um, aren't, actually, uh, aren't actually reflected in the text of the bill and mm. what's going to be important um, from forever after the bill is passed um, unless it's repealed, what's going to be important is what are the words in the bill not what are people saying about it now, what is it in not what is it intended to convey, but what does it actually say. So I think there needs to be work done on um, on working on those misunderstandings and uh, making sure that the bill says um, that the bill reflects, uh, for example, on the use of force, which is one of the things which has come up as a matter of concern. Um, we're told that it's uh, the bill is not intended to create situations where the ADF could use force within mm. Australia. Um, but that's not what the bill says. Um, and that really needs to be um, clear in the, in the bill if it does pass into law. Mm. And I suppose referencing the concerns more specifically, you know, the granting of defence ministers to a general emergency power without the requirement for consultation with states and territories, um, as well as, you know, explicit, it doesn't explicitly prohibit the use of force by the ADF, as you said, um, and has things such as, you know, extends liability within good faith actions. Um, it allows the deployment of foreign military and police and grants them immunity with criminal and civil liability. Like, these are all very vague broad powers um, and I suppose the consequences your organisation have highlighted is the human rights implications such as the impact on the right to dissent or the normalisation of militarisation as a kind of response to as we're saying climate issues can I get you to expand a bit on that and that human rights angle yeah sure um, and we're told that the bill is not going to impact on people's right to dissent mm. and yet explicitly um, exclude the use of force by ADF within Australia. Um, and so those two, the reassurance doesn't, doesn't actually match what's, what's in the bill. Um, the issue of foreign forces, um, I mean, we should say at the outset, I think, that um, countries help one another in times of national crisis such as bushfire, and that's well and good. That's something we would want to encourage. But it doesn't need to be foreign military um, or police forces. Why? Why should we not um, be focusing on foreign firefighting forces mm. rather than foreign military as a more appropriate body to call on? Um, and I, uh, the scenario which has raised concern, which the bill doesn't seem to explicitly exclude, is the scenario of uh, not only ADF using force against Australian citizens, but also foreign military using force against Australian citizens without immunity when, if and when force is used. And that is a serious um, threat to human rights. And that doesn't seem to um, 
that threat seem, seems to be implicit in the text of the bill uh, as it is currently drafted. Gotcha. Now, I wanted to reference just some counter opinions because doing my research around this, there have been some figures who have come out and said, look, a lot of people like are making too much fuss. This bill's not as dangerous as it seems to be. So I'm not endorsing these views, but I'd just like to get your opinion to them. So uh, this has mainly been referenced by the Australian Associated Press, so it gives you an idea of what angle it's coming from. But it's reported that it does not that the bill does not alter, extend, or otherwise change current existing legal authorities to deploy ADF, uh, and that's under the um, Defence Assistance of Civil Community Manual. It also says that um, it's also referenced, you know, university professors such as Jennifer McKay, who says that the bill will not provide absolute immunity. It'll be something similar to what we already have existing. And Professor Natalie um, Klein, who says basically that it's unlikely that foreign armies would be granted absolute immunity for civil or criminal jurisdictions. So these voices have been saying, well, look, the bill's not really doing anything new. Uh, these sorts of um, call-outs already existed. These immunities probably will be similar to what already exists. It's not going to be as scary as we're perhaps suggesting. Could I get your response to these these comments and more widely how reporting and public statements around this bill might not match the reality of what's inside? Right, yes. Um, well, a, a statement um, such as the one you mentioned that immunity to foreign troops is not likely to be granted or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I mean, so a statement that something's not likely is not very reassuring if we have a bill in place um, which, which becomes an act of parliament which um, doesn't exclude specific um, situations such as the use of force by foreign troops. So if that's the case, if, uh, if immunity is not likely to be a problem, then the bill should say so and the bill should set out explicitly um, the, um, that the um, that immunity is not granted. Um, Absolutely. Mm. Force is used. Um, and I guess I, I get back to the point I made earlier that if the bill is not going to uh, change much, which is really what we're being told, don't worry, it's not going to change much, mm. then why is it there? Uh, what's, what's the purpose of the bill? Um, the bill for the listener sets out sets out three areas. The first one is calling out the reserves. The second one is immunities, which is contentious, as we've talked about. And the third one is the issue of superannuation for the reserves. Um, and that, that's fine. We want reserves to have adequate superannuation um, provisions. So that last part is not contentious. But if, if as the proponents are saying, that uh, nothing much is going to change, then we've got to ask, well, why, why, why is this there? What's the purpose? What is it serving a political purpose for the Prime Minister in uh, pretending that he is doing something about climate action? Um, and given that uncertainties in the public mind with this bill have been expressed, then it needs to be, needs to have those, those uncertainties um, dealt with so that whatever passes into law um, is clear and unambiguous that uh, there will not be blanket immunity uh, and that um, and that there are adequate checks and balances in place before our troops are called out. It's especially interesting you're saying, you know, um, is it 
Scott Morrison trying to look like he's doing something on climate change because with the election, the most recent election of Joe Biden, um, some of the commentary now that's coming out is that Joe Biden's pushing a much more, will, will likely push a much more climate active, you know, policies and address. Um, and Scott Morrison's kind of put his bars up and said, right, Australia won't change policy and won't change tax. So it's, it's interesting to see which kind of train racks were, were on, rails were on, if that makes sense around that. Um, I wanted to, just as a conclusion to this interview, I wanted to get your comment on the growing militarization and kind of knee-jerk response we're seeing to the use of force as solutions to our public issues within Australia. I mean, since 2001, we've had 82 security laws passed. And this bill, whilst not strictly, you know, border security, does look at like this idea of environmental security. Can I get your thoughts on, yeah, this move to force as a solution? And I suppose it's worrying it's worrying elements and, you know, implications. Yes, absolutely. And that's a really important um, point. Uh, I'd want to probably, probably goes to the crux of this, I think. Um, yes, within us, within Australia, there has been a militarisation um, of the notion of security at a time in history when we really need to be looking at what are the big threats to all of us climate change, nuclear weapons is one that doesn't get talked about um, so much, health threats, um, threats to our ecosystems that we all, all rely on. These are the big threats we face, and yet what we're seeing is um, militarised responses, which are looking more at um, law, law and order rather than you know, creating cohesive societies where... Um, where security issues uh, are less prominent. On the international scene, we've, we're certainly seeing a huge militarisation of our international relations. Um, Australia's military budget is ramping up greatly. Um, the planned military expenditure for the coming decade from 2020 to 2030 is $575 billion uh, for the decade. Now, if we average that over the decade, that's over $1 billion every week that Australia will be spending on war and preparations for war. So there's a huge focus on preparing for, um, let's call it as it is, war with China, um, but very, very little focus on the real threats that we face, climate and the others, which I mentioned earlier. So if we're looking to sort of fight our way out of the out of threats that, that we can't fight our, fight our way out of that we need to address with, um, with a different focus. So um, it's all uh, extremely worrying. We know that the um, we know that the idea from some FOI work that Kelly Trent of the lawyer whom you mentioned, we know that the ADF is fully aware of the climate risk to to Australia as a nation. Um, the chief of the ADF, Angus Campbell, made a speech last year in which he drew attention to the severe threats that climate change poses, threats of displacement, people, um, displacement of peoples in large numbers, um, resource scarcity, food scarcity, rising tensions, all of these things um, the Defence Department is fully aware of, and yet we don't see these things reflected in government action to address them, except at the level of um, armed force, and that's deeply troubling. Well, on that note, I will, I will wrap up this interview. Thank you so much for t coming and talking to us about this, you know, this, this quite scary bill in what I think, as you've said, in the context of what's been brought in and stuff like that. 
Um, for listeners interested, obviously, I think this is the time to write to your nearest senators because <laughs> um, that is currently where the bill is at. But thank you, Sue, for coming on and talking about not only the Medical Association Prevention of War, but also your thoughts on, yeah, this issue. Thank you very much, Roger. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Next up, we have a conversation from Black Block, which is one of 3CR's shows, uh, by Viv Marlow and Mariki Onus. And they'll be talking to Lydia Thorpe about her time in Parliament and adjusting to this new environment. So I'll pass it over now to Viv and opening questions for Lydia. Community Radio 3CR, indeed. This is Black Block. And as promised, we have a Gunai Gunjit Mara woman, Lydia Thorpe, uh, whose history is steeped in these parts of Fitzroy and Collingwood. Um, she's the first grandchild born into a family of black power activists and women who themselves have changed the course of black Melbourne's history. Uh, Lydia had her first job with her uncle Robbie Thorpe, you just heard there, um, on Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. Lydia was also the first uh, Aboriginal woman in Victoria State Parliament as the former M- Greens M- MP for the seat of Northcote. And earlier this month, you listeners would know that Lydia walked into Parliament House, stood and raised her fist in a black power salute before being sworn in as the first Aboriginal Senator for Victoria. And Senator Thorpe carried a stick with 441 notches, each mark representing every Aboriginal death in custody since 1991 during uh, the ceremony. I'd like to welcome Lydia, Senator Thorpe to the show this morning. Thanks for your time, Lydia. How are you going? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Lydia. How are you going? Good, thanks, Mariki. Deadly program, three strong black women. <laughs> Can I just ask really quickly, um, what would you prefer, Senator Thorpe, Lydia? What's the protocol? Lydia. Lydia, All right. Lydia thanks. Deadly. <laughs> so what's it been like? What's, what's been a senator like? Yeah, tell us about your first couple of weeks in Parliament, Lyd. Yeah. Dear. Well, okay, sure. Uh, So it's been in stage four lockdown, like everybody else uh, in metropolitan Melbourne. So a lot of my uh, early starts and my first uh, Senate inquiry was actually the Aboriginal flag inquiry. And it's very rare to walk into a Senate position and basically a few days later get straight into a Senate inquiry. And uh, it reminded me back when I first started in the Victorian Parliament and I was straight in on the treaty legislation negotiating the treaty um, debate uh, and, yeah, walking into federal parliament going straight into the Aboriginal flag. um, I think the higher powers kind of put me in those places at the right time for some reason. Uh, So that was an interesting process. 
it's it's interesting in that uh, a lot of these committees, a lot of the Senate inquiries, they have majority of the government around the table. So uh, even if you wanted to put up a recommendation, um, the government senators can outvote you and, and not allow for those recommendations to come through. So you put through what uh, we call like a dissenting report or just extra comments about recommendations that don't get to be the official position of that committee. So that was an interesting process. It was good to see um, grassroots mob participate in, in that inquiry and hear from, you know, people on the ground what they thought about the flag. So that was prior to me actually going to Canberra. I had to do 14-day quarantine in a hotel in Canberra to actually, you know, physically be going to that chamber. Uh, but to be welcomed by traditional owners, Nambri and Ngunnawal mobs was just incredibly important for me as a as a black woman and following, you know, proper protocol. So that was just incredible down at the embassy. It started to rain, which was, was actually nice to have a bit of rain on us. I was a bit worried at first about the hair and the shoes and the makeup, but um, aunt, you know, soon put me in my place. <laughs> threw the umbrella to the side and said, no, my love, you've got to feel that rain. And i tell you what, when I did, it was just incredible. So that gave me the, you know, the courage to then walk into that place and um, give a salute and, and let that chamber know that I'm bringing in um, grassroots voices here and a struggle, you know, an age-old 240-year-old struggle into a place that denied our our voices and our place in that in that place for far too long. So it's been good. There's more to come. I've got a Senate um, got estimates on this week and next week. So we get to really grill the government and all the bureaucrats on where they spend their money. So I'm looking forward to asking that. And my first question tonight is at nine PM I'm on from 9pm till 11pm for Senate estimates. So it's exciting. Sounds really exciting. I just want to go back, though. You, you said that you made a salute, and I saw the video and the photo, and the, you took a message stick in. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, the importance of making that mark and walking into, um, what is it called? Is it the Senate chambers? Yes. And making that mark, can you talk about the significance of carrying that message stick into Parliament and how that would set your intention in your time there? Yeah, well, look, we, you know, the the constant death in custody of our people is affecting so many of our mob around the country and, and including me personally. You know, no one is, is not affected by... Um, someone being lost to the, the hands of this racist system. And we're running campaigns and we're having Black Lives Matter rallies, which is, which is great and we need to keep the pressure on. But I wanted to go in there with that, that voice and with that struggle to highlight to the Senate but also to the media that each of those markings on that stick represents a life taken by the system that they all endorse that continually oppresses our people and ultimately kills us. 
So the message stick was smoked down at the Aboriginal tent embassy first. And, yeah, it's just a symbol, I suppose, of, of how many people we've lost, but also how much work we have to do to turn that around and, and change these racist policies and legislation and, and decision-making that goes on in that place. I also wore my possum skin cloak, which I was given in my time at Northcote by people in a, you know, in the Bendigo local Aboriginal community who gave that possum skin cloak to me for protection. So I felt that I had, you know, I was being protected by my elders, my old people, uh, by going into that place and doing what I had to do, and that was swear allegiance to the coloniser. Uh, so I felt I still had that protection by wearing my my possum skin. So I was, yeah, it was a rash decision to put my fist up. I only thought about it the night before. Freaked out um, my staff. They were a bit worried when they got a text the next morning saying, uh, I'm going to put my fist up. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and that sent everyone into a bit of a tiz. But um, I felt that it was important to to not just walk in there, but to send a strong message of, from our people. And that was sent, and I hope, yeah, received. Uh, I wanted to ask, well, have you had any, I know it's early days, but have you had any, anything that surprised you about your role so far that you didn't expect? Uh, there's a lot of privilege. There's a lot of, um, yes, Senator, no Senator, open the door for you, Senator, and I've, that's, that's only... You know, in my world, that's only reserved for our, our elders. So that's a bit weird and a bit gammon. <laughs> mm. um, and I just don't feel comfortable with that. I've asked a number of people just to call me Lydia, but it's the Senate rules, it's the parliamentary rules that they do that. And there's a, there's a young Aboriginal woman, in fact, when I first... when oh, I think it was day two that I walked into Parliament and she said, hey, hey, sis. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> and it was this black woman staffer of parliament. And I said, just call me Lydia. She said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not allowed. And I said, oh, we'll do a secret wave, black fella wave, then every time I come in. <laughs> oh, that's deadly. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, look, once, um, yeah, it, it's different. Um, we've got a lot of power, which, you know, let's use it. I want, um, this is my people's power. It's not mine personally. And I want my people to, to know that. Uh, so, yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's also, you know, just a job for me and it's a job that I've, I'm taking very seriously uh, and it's a job where I'll continue to fight for our people's rights and the betterment of our people. Lydia, I have a question. Uh, well, not a question. I just want you to make comment. What do you say to people like Jeff Kennett? He tweeted you to say that you basically have to learn to walk before you run in the Senate and you seem to get a lot of criticism like you're a newbie or you're an understudy, which I feel like has a bit of misogynist and racist tones as though you're a child. Um, what do you say to criticisms like that from conservatives and other to say that you hardly know what you're doing? When, you know, what do you say to that? What's your response to um, criticisms like that? Uh, well, I, I actually text Jeff and said, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for the advice, mate. 
Uh, and he texted me back and said, no worries, Lydia, I'm here for you. Anytime you uh, need any advice, please reach out. So, look, I, I take on constructive criticism. Um, I, I'm not about to crawl before I walk in that place. They're being crawling and walking and running and, you know, taking control of our country for far too long. So they're the ones that have got the catching up to do, not us. Do you really uh, so take advice from Jeff Kennett? <laughs> no, I don't take advice. <laughs> it's, it's always good to know what the other side are thinking and doing, which I think is very important part of this process because we need, to, you know, we're 3% of the population. We need to get the rest of the population over to the way we're, we're thinking and what we want. And it means knowing who your enemy is, knowing who your opposition is. So, you know, I've made some, I've had some good yarns already in Parliament. I've had yarns with Josh Frydenberg. I've had yarns with the the National Party leader in the Senate, Bridget McKenzie, who's well known for sports rorts. I uh, had Pauline Hanson sitting next to me in the chamber at one point. Uh, which I haven't said out in the media, but I'll let you fellas know. And, you know, I quickly rushed to my seat so I could sit next to her and she had her back kind of turned to me and I turned around and I said, Hi, Pauline, how are you going today? And she had to turn around and had to say hello to me and also congratulated me for um, becoming a senator. And that was it. So... You know, I'm in that place. Interesting. They're very interesting and I want to be able to have conversations with all of them uh, because they they need to hear the truth and they need to have some kind of understanding, maybe, if they're open to it. You might be the one that turns Pauline on her head then. (laughs) Amazing. Lydia, where do you get, you know, what I really admire about you is that you know, the way the, your response to the, to the people, the people that you're going to have to deal with every day, this is a tough gig. How do you maintain, you know, your composure? One, I'd, I'd last a couple of seconds, me. Um, it's, it, it's a tough gig and you respond really dignified and, you know, how do you, how, where does that come from? Um, I suppose it comes from, like, mum very, um, you know, conciliatory in her approach. She always has been, uh, well, she sat on the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation 20 years ago. And I suppose just just meeting people where they're at. So, yes, even the conservatives, even the racists, meeting them where they're at and just trying to find some common ground just to start having a yarn with them about. And... I don't know. I just treat people like like people, uh, and a lot of people in that space don't do that. You know, they're so very white, so very privileged, uh, and they're really out of touch with grassroots people on the ground. So it's a bit of a reality check for them, I suppose. And everyone's actually very um, they're very pleasant to one another outside of the chamber. Everyone's yeah, right. you know quite friendly. It's different to my experience in the lower house in, in Victoria, people were badly behaved, screaming at one another. Kids were, kids 
in school groups would be crying from the the horror show that would be unfolding in the lower house, so where the Premier sits. And the Senate's a little bit calmer, I would say. Um, people still have shots at one another, but I think that it's just a different vibe. And that was just a segment of Viv and Mariki's conversation with Lydia. If you are interested in listening to the rest, you can find it on our 3CR website at Black Block. You can also listen to the show Black Block on Mondays from 11 o'clock to 1pm. To give you an idea, the full interview is about 30 minutes long, so I definitely recommend you go on and check it out. We're now going to jump to a song. Earlier on we had Gosling's Harvest of Gold. We're now going to go over to a track by Misha called Drowning, a bit of a trigger warning I suppose. It starts off with uh, the racist comments made by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and Misha uses it uh, as a basis I suppose to her track. If people choose to live where there's no jobs, obviously it's very very difficult to close the gap. Uh, It's not the job of the taxpayer to subsidise lifestyle choices. The way you wake your freedom when it's heavy with opinions of her See 
And for our next interview, we'll be switching back to a conversation I had with Cheryl from the National Aboriginal Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, NATASILS for short, about the new Close the Gap refreshers. I'm going to throw now to Cheryl, who's discussing the main difference between the 2008 and the 2020 refresh. What step forwards do you think we've made since 2008 in regards to the process of these, these targets and also the outcome? Well, I suppose the difference in regards to the 2008 um, process is that it was governments that were really determining um, the um, targets um, in regards to you know, develop the targets for coalition uh, for the, for the um, close to that period. And as a result, you know, we did see that there was not great success achieved over that 10-year period. Um, and I think, again, it just demonstrated the lack of engagement um, with First Nations people in regards to critical matters that impact on our lives and the quality of our lives. And particularly our government um, provide programs and develop policies and, um, you know, and fund programs. Um, you know, it's important for us to um, have our self-determination recognised um, and that we are sitting at the table. And that's predominantly the, the big difference, I think, between 2008 and to where we've got to now is because um, about late 2018, um, there were probably around about 14 um, co like national coalitions, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander national um, agencies and um, organisations came together. And we were concerned about the way the refresh um, process was going. Um, and it looked like it was going down the same old track mm. that it had previously done. Um, you know, the government were, um, you know, engaging people, but they were not really engaging Aboriginal community control organisations. Um, and Again, um, you know, we're bringing people to the table that felt and nominated that they, they wanted to bring from the table from the relevant states and territories. So um, we um, came together um, and we were really concerned about what was going. So what we had done was uh, write a joint letter to the Prime Minister, um, highlighting to him that this was, you know, the next 10 years is a great opportunity um, for positive change for our people. Um, if um, you know his government were to commit to um, and include having national um, peak bodies and local Aboriginal community controlled organisations from each state and territory sitting at the table, um, and uh, he actually took up the the mantle, um, and then we started developing what we call uh, the national partnership um, agreement, and um, that was really critical um, because I think it's the first time that we've ever had Aboriginal people sitting at the table with state, Commonwealth and local government um, agencies um, and working out an agreement about how we would work together um, to develop um, the, um, the closing the gap targets um, in the future. Yeah, So that's basically where we got to and we had a commitment um, that this was about having an equal partnership. Mm. Uh, not a top-down approach, um, and you know, if you want to have success um, going forward, as we wanted within our communities going forward, then we need to have our mob sitting at the table. Absolutely. And so, there's been 16 targets set. Uh, just given a point of comparison, 2008's targets, only three of them are on track to success. So that I think, as you said, speaks for itself. Um, now, Natasils has been vocal about the consultation process and has argued that it was rushed. And I'll touch on that in a moment. But I wanted to first touch on the kind of the gaps that these targets haven't addressed or adequately addressed. Um, the most 
vocal, I suppose, your organisation has been about is especially the incarceration or the over-incarceration of adults and children. Now, yeah. the formal um, target that's come out of this refresh is for a reduction of 15%, I believe, and Nathasil has argued that it needs to be increased up to 23% for adults and 28% for um, children over the next 10 years. We need to see a reduction of those rates. Can I get your thoughts on why that is so essential and why I suppose the government's target just isn't ambitious enough? Well, you know, we made it clear that a 15% reduction is not acceptable mm. for the adult justice target because um, we want to see the, the change in our lifetime. Um, and, you know, we also agree with uh, Mr White who expressed weeks ago that the 2093 parity will hinder progress. And, you know, to think about um, this current target that we will only reach parity in 2093 mm. um, is quite astounding in itself. And um, so, so just to clarify that for people, the parity date is the end date. So that's kind of like right. we'd, we'd achieve this 15% by 2093. So in seven right. years' time, is that correct? It's on track. Um, Crazy. Look, it, it is um, quite astounding. And, but I suppose, you know, um, on the flip side as well, we've got to look at some of the positives. You know, we know when we negotiate with governments, we always don't get 100% what we want. Mm. Um, but getting justice targets, um, you know, included in the agreement, is a big achievement in itself, um, and NATSOL is very proud of that achievement. Um, but we also need to be really mindful that when we're talking about targets, we want to have that true, um, achievable, ambitious targets. Um, and when we think about the targets of at least 23% adults and 28% for year-on-year reduction in order to reach parity on incarceration rates in 10 years, and when we look at the horrific over-incarceration rates that we currently have in this country, um, you know, we need to be having a stronger commitment um, in regards to addressing, um, you know, the over-representation of our people in the justice system. So that's where NATSAL's position is that, you know, we pushed um, for the targets um, that we wanted. Um, but again, you know, this is a negotiation process um, and, you know, uh, we, I suppose, need to, um, we will continue, um, even throughout the 10-year agreement, um, to try and reach um, greater parity uh, and push that throughout the agreement. And I suppose in a statement, um, Nassils has also provided, they've said that there's a missed opportunity for disability targets to be included and also family violence uh, targets to be strong. Could I get your comments around this as well? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've been very clear on is, you know, if we had... Um, specific justice targets relating to family violence um, and disability mm. um, and housing, because housing is another area, even though you know, there are housing targets there, but what we need to have is those to actually look at how we can address those issues, because we believe that that will also further reduce incarceration rates of our people um, entering into the justice system. We have many people in the justice system who have disabilities, who end up in the justice system and who should be getting a medical and a health response rather than a criminal uh, punitive response. Um, and then we also see with family violence, um, you know, a lot um, of our people coming into the system um, as a result of family violence. And, you know, family violence plays a big area right across child protection, um, where we're seeing increased rates of removal of children. Um, and yet, you know, I think the, the issue that we've got to really take on board here is that uh, the women and children facing family violence are victims and they should not be further, you know, penalised um, mums who are facing serious family violence situations, you know, having their children removed, which just creates further trauma. Um, you know, and 
to be quite frank, you know, a lot of our women in our communities um, are not safe, um, even when they utilise all the interventions that are made available to talk to them. Um, so that's why we've been pushing very strongly um, for those targets. Regarding the consultation process leading up to the agreement, um, I suppose one of the quotes I've got out of, and I think this is your quote, so sorry to quote back at you, but um, you said that the process continues to be an approach that does not reflect the government commitments to working with us, but rather doing things to us. And can I, can I get your expansion on that with the idea of the lack of time in the consultation process and the exclusion of peak Indigenous bodies? Um, in the context, um, you know, the coalition of peaks um, have stood very strong and have yeah. been very prepared throughout the whole whole process. And um, you know, we are proud of the fact about how the coalition of the peaks um, um, and through the joint council um, have come to the table prepared um, and been very clear about what it is um, that we would uh, we wanting in the negotiation context. Um, so you know, the leadership throughout that period, um, I have to say, has been quite amazing. Mm. But again, you know, what you get at the end of the day is, and what we're still yet to see, um, that this is an agreement in its early stages. Um, there is um, accountability, I suppose, um, in the context, stronger accountability that that government have committed to that they never had committed to before. Um, and there are four priority reform areas, and one in particular that is about how we invest um, back into Aboriginal communities controlled um, sector network and back into our communities who don't have community controlled agencies. Um, because you know we see a lot of our funding going out to non-Aboriginal um, um, community controlled organisations um, and they're, to be quite frank, are not meeting um, or successfully delivering the level of services that could be developed by our own people. And only that, I mean if we look at those reforms, um, it also creates employment opportunities um, for our people in our communities as well. So there's a great lot of benefits um, that go with that. What we need is a commitment from the governments to keep their side of the bargain in this agreement. And that's going to be what um, we will see going forward. There are a lot of more monitoring, reviewing mechanisms in place um, throughout the agreement, which were not there previously. Um, and each of the states and territories um, so we've had the National Coalition of Peak Bodies like National Aboriginal Tribes for Under Legal Services um, and then we've had in each state and territory jurisdictions uh, Aboriginal community control sectors coming together to form a voice for their state in regards to closing the gap. And, and they will be the bodies that will be liaising with governments, um, both Commonwealth, state and local governments um, in regards to the agreement. So in um, the context, the proof will be in the pudding um, to see um, once we have our first report um, mm -hmm. about how governments are meeting their commitment in this agreement. And we will do everything we can to try and keep them accountable. Well, yeah, I think as, as you said, like the, um, the Coalition of Peaks has done an amazing job for the turnaround <laughs> and the, the creation of these targets. And I was reading Nat Sill's um, recommendation, which I will put up for listeners, which was so thorough in its recommendations and explanation. Um, I, I suppose... Just building on this idea of um, the reinvestment, the ju National Justice Reinvestment Body that you you've just been discussing and this trend that we often see of money being funded to, as you said, non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, you know, groups. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit more about um, why this is so effective and does this fit into, you know, kind of what we've been hearing in the defund the police movement, I suppose, where it's like you put money into other services and you address those, those roots? 
Yes, well, for far too long, um, and I'll talk from the justice system context, mm. um, and from my experience, and you know, I've been working in the justice sector uh, uh, for over probably 30 odd years. So, you know, there's a lot that I've seen um, over that period of time. And one of the things um, that is really crucial for us is um, the self-determination of our people mm. to be able to determine what it is and what program, what our needs are at our local level. Um, far too long um, policy-driven um, initiatives by government are usually on a political context rather than looking at the needs um, and what can be delivered to meet the needs of Aboriginal communities. And so that's what we're trying to change um, like in that context. And it's really important um, when we talk about self-determination, you know, we need, we need to realise and recognise that in this country, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples have not had a lot of control over funding um, and how that is um, you know, disseminated across communities. And the only time we had that previously was when with ATSIC many, many years ago. And by the way, um, I was an ATSIC, um, on an ATSIC uh, regional councillor at that time in South Australia, mm. and I saw the great benefits and the thriving of our Aboriginal communities where, um, you know, the entity of ATSIC was actually specifically having a focus on looking at Aboriginal communities and how, um, you know, communities could thrive and actually build programs um, at a, what we call the early intervention prevention context, but also just, you know, having services available to communities. And we've got a lot of that, particularly in our regional communities. Right. Um, their voices and their ability to have their own services. Um, uh, you know, this funding's been pulled back over the years by Commonwealth. Um, so, you know, we have hope in the future. Um, well, I do. Um, and one of the things that, um, you know, we've been trying to push through the Coalition of Peaks is to actually have that investment back in our, at our community level because mm -hmm. Um, evidence has demonstrated time and time again that when we deliver programs and services in our own communities um, that we do get good results and there seems to be a lot of um, a lot of um, and then we think of ATSIC now they always focus on you know, you know that you know there was a rorting and all this sort of stuff we well, you know the rorting happens right across government there's rorting that happens right across our agencies um, in other sectors um, but they have not been um, torn apart like we've seen um, you know, in the context of what I call the Aboriginal self-determination um, driven issues that were available to us previously. And all we're asking is, is that you know, that's what we want to see going in the future. Um, government um, designing programs without Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, they don't reach success. Um, so this is really the time now um, for government to listen at all levels. Um, and to include us in the decision making and let us also tell them what we need. It's not just a top-down approach. And that was Cheryl from Nattersills. Again, this was only a segment of our chat the other day, so you can look back on Wednesday breakfast and see previous episodes to listen to the full conversation. The Jabberung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jabberung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. 
ring Daniel Andrews on 96515000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Jafarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Bombs is a protest against like all the food waste. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste, make meals from that food, and serves them up to people who need a feed. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. We need to have a working vehicle. So we do need money to keep our van going. Very occasionally we have to buy some food. To donate to our current fundraiser, go to www.chaft.org forward slash project forward slash food not bombs pandemic support. Food not bombs is a 3CR supporter. Alright, for our next story, we've got a bit of good news. So recent findings handed down by the Australian Financial Complaints Authority state that the funeral service Yopla PT LTD misrepresented itself as an Aboriginal-owned and controlled not-for-profit community organisation serving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Uh, this was called out within the case as highly deceptive and damaging to its clients. And to explain the case a little bit further and why it's so significant, uh, we actually have Siobhan from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services to discuss the case more. This case has been in conjunction with Financial Rights, another legal service. Uh, good morning, Siobhan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No worries. So this story starts with Yopla, a private organisation whose subsidiary ACBF funeral plans has been rotting First Nations clients through misleading and deceptive contact. Could you tell us a little bit about the claims of malpractice and how VALS got involved with this case? Certainly. So Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, that, that was the old name of UPLA or UPLA. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, actually. And they ran for many, they ran for many years. They still are a company. Um, and as the name says, Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, it sounds like they're a Aboriginal company for mm. the benefit of the Aboriginal community and that they provide a fund. And we, um, along with other legal services, ran some cases in Africa, which is the financial ombudsman. Mm-hmm. And it was found that ACBF misled consumers um, and that they targeted vulnerable consumers. So, for one, they're not Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have any Aboriginal um, ownership at the time of these cases. Um, that's slightly changed now, but um, they didn't at the time. They're not for the benefit of the community. They're a for-profit company for the benefit of their shareholders, and they were not a fund. Um, my particular client was signed up to the plan, um, which is a funeral expenses plan, mm-hmm. um, and you get money back for the funeral expenses, so it's not even money that you – you don't even get a set benefit amount. Going around this Aboriginal Community Funeral Fund, there is a few kind of dodgy products from what I can understand. So you have the funeral expenses insurance policy uh, primarily targeted towards Aboriginal communities, and you also had this sort of concept that the fund would go towards the Aboriginal community as a whole 
as you said, though, used to sh- it would go to shareholders rather because it's a private organisation. I wanted to kind of get your your explanation of how I suppose these products, especially funeral sh- insurance, was weaponized by Upload against First Nation communities. For example, in, in my client's case, hmm. um, she lived in rural Victoria. She was 20 years old at the time. She was signed up to funeral insurance. She was very young to be, you know, worrying about funeral insurance. So yeah. you pay 10 dollars a fortnight for the rest of, you You know, hopefully for another 60, 70 years. Um, that's a lot more money than the $6,000 benefit you would ever receive back. If you stop paying or you uh, hit financial difficulty, then you lose you lose the money you put in, and that that's what happened to my client until she was um, until Africa, um determined that she should receive a refund for the premium she paid. So she essentially lost her money when um, Centerpay, which is the government, it's the like direct debit from your Centrelink. Mm. ACBF used to be able to use that, and generally that's used by um, you know social housing housing providers. You can choose to have your rent Centerpaid, mm. uh, energy and water bills. ACBF were using it. ACBF were kicked off it, and many people, um, like my client, then lost their policy because they—they more well, my client were never receiving the letters because she'd moved around a lot, and so mm-hmm. she didn't know that she wasn't making the payment. Um, in general, funeral insurance is targeted at people who have few savings, and that um, unfortunately is a characteristic of the Aboriginal community just in that they're sometimes disadvantaged, not everyone, but some parts of the community are. And um, you'll see the funeral insurance ads on telly during the day. Um, they're targeted at people who don't have any money in the bank and they worry about what will happen when they pass away. Now, if somebody has, you know, some savings, it's not something that they worry about. Um, so I think that it's generally targeted at more vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what um, AFCA found, that ACBF targeted you know, vulnerable people. And, and the Royal Commission um, into Banking and Finance also highlighted that, that ACBF, um, you know, targeted the Aboriginal community. Absolutely. And so AFCA found out specifically, the findings specifically were that um, ACBF misled and deceived the complaint by a combination of product branding and sales process, misled and deceived the complaint to believe the plan was controlled and sold for the benefit of the Aboriginal community, and found that the complainant's dealings with the ACBF uh, did not actually understand premiums. So we're talking about the product being kind of dodgy and then not being well explained. Not being explained at all, and mm. that um, because of the vulnerabilities of, of some of, of ACBF's Consumers, so I have other clients who have difficulty reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a common theme in some um, of the ACBF clients, especially some older people who may not have had the opportunity to receive, um, you know, formal education. Uh, a lot of clients, older like people I speak with, sometimes they finish school at year seven, year eight, mm-hmm. so they really struggle with dense uh, trust funds or plan rules. Um, they're difficult to read for a lawyer. Um, and, and so that, you know, if you did have formal education, it's not easy to understand. And um, it was more the sales tactics were more like this is, you know, it's a, it's a fund that you can sign up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they've spoken about in the Africa determination about how um, it just wasn't explained properly. And some, when somebody's vulnerable, those things need to be properly explained. Absolutely. So from my understanding, basically the, you've had two case, successful cases um, and this AFCA ruling, and there are still seven cases to go. Is that correct? I was just going to say not quite. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only 
eight vowels. Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services just had one case before Africa. We've got um, a few more currently in internal dispute resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that Financial Rights has another couple and then New South Wales Legal Aid has more as well. So there could still be 30 to 40 um, cases before AFCA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think there's an exact number in a recent uh, news article. <laughs> no worries, we can track that yeah. down. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I suppose I was wondering what sort of precedents or precedents have been set through this ruling because, um, you know, it's it's quite significant in the fact that Yopla has been called out quite a few times over the last decade. And this has been one of those, uh, I suppose, cases which had a really significant outcome for individuals showing that they've deceived and misled. Um, yeah, what, what do we think is going to happen from this? Look, these AFCA determinations, and I know there's like four or five of them, are very helpful. But AFCA is not a court; um, it's a, it's like an, it's an ombudsman, um, yep. and it, it's not bound by abuse determinations, but it does make decisions that are fair and reasonable. So you would think that having, if your case has similar characteristics to the cases that have already been before AFCA, that a similar determination will be made. It's not the same as you can't rely on it, but you can uh, make note of it, which, of course, we'll be doing when we bring more cases um, to UPLA's attention. Hmm. Um, what will happen is that it's unknown what exactly will happen. Um, we do, We are worried that customers, uh, clients of UPLA or ACBF could be left um, without any funny funds at all if UPLA for some reason ceases to operate mm-hmm. um, and we are really concerned that that could happen. So, yeah, many current and former policyholders have been impacted by UPLA's misconduct and VALS, along with other community organisations, will be advocating for an appropriate redress scheme to compensate the community in the event that UPLA failed to pay compensation or are due. If UPLA ceases to operate, around 13,000 people with UPLA policies could lose their past and future coverage, and the Aboriginal and um, Torres Strait Islander communities should not bear the cost of poor legal drafting, inappropriate legal loopholes, and inadequate regulation. So the, the, the funeral expenses exemption was recently changed in the Corporations Act after the Hain Royal Commission, which has meant that ACBF UPLA have un, been unable to sell any policies since April this year, because they need an Australian financial um, license and they, as far as I'm aware, are yet to get that license. And um, ASIC, the regulator who provides that license, are currently um, taking them to court. Um, right. Draw your own conclusion there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really worried that um, the community is going to be left in the lurch and we will be advocating for an appropriate redress scheme. Cool. Um, the, the last question I wanted to end on, and this is more of a broad, I suppose, question, but there's been a lot of recent backlash against, for example, clothing lines that present themselves as First Nations owned and are not, or all these sorts of, the, I think there's a growing culture of calling out these companies that are presenting one thing and actually, you know, private and not <laughs> First Nations owned or driven. I wanted to ask, do you work with many cases where organisations do this and, and they manipulate community like this? Is this going to be something that you think we're going to hear more of? In, in VALS, it's not something that we would come up much about because we act for the community. Mm-hmm. So we act for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. If we do, if, if, if it was something that we heard about um, and, for example, somebody's 
intellectual property was being used without their consent, um, an Aboriginal person's intellectual property was being used, and by, and, you know, that was being used by a business portraying itself to be Aboriginal, which wasn't, mm-hmm. um, there certainly would be legal um, legal avenues for that person to take. It's not something that my team would do, but we would certainly refer them to a more appropriate um, legal service. And, um, yeah, we'd really encourage if, if people did have those complaints or wanted some um, advice or referrals that they could definitely, um, people in Victoria could definitely contact the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And if we can't help, we can always find, um, we do our best to find somebody who can help because um, intellectual property is a very uh, complex area. We can't we can't tackle everything at Vales, unfortunately. No, fair enough. Well, thank you so much, Siobhan, for coming and talking to us about this case. Congrats on it. <laughs> I think it's a great step forward and unnecessary kind of expo- exposing of Yopla who have been doing, you know, as I said, I was looking uh, in my research, I was looking at them and they've been called out a few times, but um, they seem to just kind of evolve. <laughs> so I think this one was a really important case. So thanks. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
And you're listening to 3CR. Now we're coming to the wrap-up of the show. Just as a reminder of who we had on, at the start of the show we had Dr Sue Wareham from the Medical Association for Prevention of War talking about this new bill called the Defence Legislation Amendment Bill. Again, just a quick recap, this is a bill that seeks to streamline the call-out of ADF forces in the cases of climate emergencies. And Sue made a really fantastic point about the context that this is brought in and Australia's increasingly militarised approach to dealing with issues, especially things like climate change. So um, we will have the report that the Senate came out with recently uh, available on today's rundown, as well as Sue's organisational statement. Then we also had a excerpt from Black Block this week uh, with Viv and Mariki talking to Lydia Thorpe about her time in Parliament and I suppose this really exciting representation and power that we're now seeing from Lydia Thorpe as a grassroots politician. After that we listened back to my conversation with Cheryl from Natasils a month ago around the Close the Gap targets and how collaboration with the Coalition of Peaks uh, 14 different Indigenous bodies has helped to strengthen these targets and it now remains uh, up to the government to help succeed them through localised community funding and greater opportunities for self-determination. Finally, we then also had a conversation with Siobhan Doyle from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services. This is a smaller story and I think one that needs to get a bit more airtime. It's Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services' recent win in the Australian Financial Complaints Authority against the company Yopla, who has been misrepresenting itself and deceiving clients as an Aboriginal-owned and controlled community fund, uh, where it is is really in reality a private organisation that has been predatory towards First Nations communities. So that wraps up our show for the week. Hope you really enjoyed it. Again, following with the theme of NADOC this week and always was, always will be, I'm going to play a series of clips now. So the first one we have is um, a community service announcement for the three C- community service announcement for three CRs Beyond the Bars uh, launch this year. So that will be happening this Thursday. Uh, the <laughs> the community announcement will have more details, but definitely tune in. Beyond the Bars is a fantastic initiative that 3CR runs every year, bringing you music from, from prisons across the country and really getting the voices of artists within those prisons out there. We'll then also just have a quick clip by Docker TV, who have put together this year a Always Was, Always Will Be NADOC Week 2020 video with various First Nations members um, throughout Australia and throughout different fields, age levels, everything talking about the significance of NADOC week and talking about the significance of this year's theme. And finally, to close off the show, we'll have the fantastic Dreaming Now um, song Ancestors featuring Kian Prod and Riverboy. So that's going to be our show. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Wednesday Breakfast. I hope you have a wonderful week and definitely stay tuned for 3CR because this week's going to be one of those special ones with fantastic content every day. Have a lovely Wednesday. Tune into the 2020 Beyond the Bars CD launch on air Thursday the 12th of November. Despite the lifting of some COVID restrictions, we'll be launching this year's CD on air and online. This broadcast event will feature highlights from the July broadcast and officially launch the 2020 CD. Order your free copy of the CD now from 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. Been locked up for the last five years, and I always run in the family in here. There's that that many 
that much more family and it's not funny. This is the point, not only in here, and in Dame Phyllis too, you know what I mean? So, and there's a lot of women, Aboriginal women locked up to it at the moment. It's not decreasing in the last few years, it's just more or less increasing. This doesn't make sense sometimes, you know? Tune in on Thursday the 12th of November at 2pm for the launch. Always was, always will be recognises that First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for over 65,000 years. We are spiritually and culturally connected to this country. This country was crisscrossed by generations of brilliant nations. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were Australia's first explorers. First navigators, first engineers, first farmers, first botanists, first scientists, first diplomats, first astronomers, and first artists. Australia has the world's oldest oral stories. The first peoples engraved the world's first maps, made the earliest paintings of ceremony, and invented unique technologies. We built and engineered structures, structures on Earth, predating well-known sites such as the Egyptian pyramids and Stonehenge. Our adaption and intimate knowledge of country enabled us to endure climate change, catastrophic droughts and rising sea levels. Always Was, Always Will Be acknowledges that hundreds of nations and our cultures covered this continent. All were managing the land, the biggest estate on Earth to sustainably provide for their future. Through ingenious land management systems like fire stick farming, they transformed the harshest habitable continent into a land of bounty. Madoc Week 2020 acknowledges and celebrates that our nation's story didn't begin with documented European contact, whether in 1770 or 1606 with the arrival of the Dutch on the western coast of the Cape York Peninsula. The very first footsteps on this continent were those belonging to the First Nations peoples. Their coastal nations watched and interacted with at least 36 contacts made by Europeans prior to 1770, many of them resulting in the charting of the northern, western and southern coastlines of their lands and their waters. For us, this nation's story began at the dawn of time. NAIDOC 2020 invites all Australians to embrace the true history of this country. A history which dates back thousands of generations. It's seeing, hearing and learning the First Nations 65,000 plus years of history in this country, which is Australian history. We want all Australians to celebrate that we have the oldest continuing cultures on the planet and to recognise that our sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be. 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 Always was, always will be.
creator's wisdom, creator's spirit, beautiful, strong as the givers. Lost for the sacred lands, eternal systems delivered through the sun to the depths they glisten. Stars in the night, crystallized life. Ancestors' prayers in my ears, so sublime. Blood in the soil, never forget or deny that anguish, the cries, the ongoing genocide, the devastation, theft, and wiping out of tribes, remorseless attacks, heinous crimes, poison in the waters, but the people we survived inscribed with lies and decimated with deceitful bribes. But the people we survived pay respect and give love and thanks one time. One time, one time, peace, love, and unity to all my originals rise. The ancestors in the land that makes every child, woman, and man, no matter where you stand. The ancestors in the land, so why? I pay respect. The ancestors in the land that makes every child, woman, and man, no matter where you stand. Ancestors in the land, so why? I pay respect. The world lost its mind like a sleep deprived. People not peeping signs of the symbols divine. Carvings in stone, sacred piles, ancient truths, and the workings of the grounds. The creeks in the rivers, forests where snakes liver. Bird calls deliver all truths and lost diction. The fog's holy halo, crystallized and glisten. Now we're placed with straight names, duty blitzing, smiles, lines, space, comfortable and smitten, roads and avenues, central business district, spiritual, lassitude, laws and metaphysics, overtaken by the laws of these long, long distance, preceded the present, new type of linguistics, causing nations conflated, seemingly cryptic, but confusion, word and rampant, but deeply intrinsic, devastation, hitting, severed tie to the ancient rocks. Vaporized out of sight on a soon to be broken down plot. Omens I can pair seeping into sight. Time to awaken, pay respect. The ancestors in the land of miss every child, woman, and man, no matter where you stand. The ancestors in the land, so why? 